0: You are listening to the I Want to Speak to the Principal podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Milstead and William Jeffrey. It's where education is. So sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of I Want to Speak to the Principal.
1: There are many prevailing myths that serve as cornerstones for those who advocate the advancement of school vouchers over the public school system. Ideas such as school vouchers offer students in failing schools access to a better education. School vouchers allow parents to choose their child's education. School vouchers improve education in general by making public schools compete with private schools for students in a free market. And the all-time classic, school vouchers allow school districts to overcome racial and other segregations. Proponents of these statements feel strongly that if repeated often enough, as myths are, then many who have any doubt in the effectiveness of the current U.S. public school system may be persuaded to concur while buying into these unfound statements. Myths, widely held but false beliefs or ideas, are prevalent in our American school system. Most are created to infuse a line of division between a good school and a bad one. They're often conjugated not necessarily based on what is actually occurring at the school, but more so on how society views those who are in the school. In this episode of I Want to Speak with the Principal, we will investigate age old myths surrounding schools of poverty. In addition, we have an exclusive interview with Dr. Kimberly McLeod, Assistant Superintendent for the Harris County Department of Education on the Impact of the Coronavirus on U.S. Schools. So sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of I Want to Speak to the Principal.
2: thoughts and opinions expressed during this or any broadcasts belong solely to our guests or our hosts. These broadcasts do not represent or reflect the views of their employers, sponsors, or affiliated organizations.
1: Speak the principal would like to welcome Dr. Francis Hester to our show. Dr. Hester, good morning.
3: Good morning, everybody.
1: Good morning, Dr. Hester, and thank you for joining us
4: this morning. Yeah, good morning, Dr. Hester. William Jeffrey, how are you?
3: Good morning, Mr. Jeffries. I am well and excited to have this opportunity to visit with you all this morning.
4: Well, thank
1: you. We're excited to have you, Dr. Hester. Dr. Hester, would you uh, start by just giving us uh, some information about your background in education?
3: Awesome. Yes, I have had the wonderful privilege of serving in this ministry called Education. It will be 30 years, December 2020 of this year. And I've had uh, an array of experiences. I started off as a classroom teacher, then was privileged to uh, become a school counselor. And after working as a school counselor, I had the opportunity to be work in volunteers in public schools, which is communication. And so I did that for a little while, but realized that I truly love being on a campus setting. And so I went back to become an assistant principal and as an assistant principal for three years serving in Charleston and Campus, I uh, decided to go ahead and pursue the opportunity to become a principal. And so I served as a principal for 15 plus years and thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. And and then after a while, I was recruited to actually work with the Department of Education. Now I stand as the senior director of the Teaching and Learning Center, where we provide professional development for districts throughout the nation.
1: Wow, that is a wide array of experience, Dr. Hesher.
4: Wow, that's amazing. That is. I was a benefit of going to some of your sessions at the Harris County Department of Education. So you guys do an amazing job out there.
3: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. We try really, really really hard to provide quality, relevant, research-based professional development. So thank you for that. that feedback.
1: And of course, I've known you for quite some time, Dr. Hester, way back in the day when you were just an up-and-coming school counselor. Man, I used to mention 30 years. I said, wow, I've been knowing over half that amount of time, so... Not trying to age myself, but uh, <laughs> and, and not trying to age you also. But uh, we have been uh, we have been colleagues and friends for quite some time. Again, I welcome this opportunity to share would, to have you share your thoughts with us on the topic that uh, that's to kind of that is being prevalent throughout education, and that is myths surrounding schools of poverty. Uh, and we want to discuss that with you today. You know, one myth that is out there quite a bit and has been for quite some time is that students from schools of poverty really don't value education. Your, what are your views on that, Dr. Hester?
3: So I just simply and thank you for, for give, giving me the opportunity to share. I just uh-huh. simply shake my head it is quite discouraging but uh, I've learned as an educator that you can't get discouraged with comments that are being made about certain campuses. I totally disagree with that. As you know, I've had the privilege of serving at multiple campuses, and all of those campuses were campuses that had students that came from poverty backgrounds. That is certainly not true. Mm. As you know, uh, Dr. Mills said, being a principal, most times when we would drive up to the campus, our kids were there waiting on us. Right. And so they were waiting to get into the building because they wanted to learn. They wanted to be in a safe environment. Mm. They wanted to bring their best, and they did bring their best, but we had to meet them where they were or where they are and then take them to the next level. So that's certainly not true. I can tell you that I would, that is probably the only campus that I would want to work at because the students that are coming from those environments are very transparent, they're very open and they're very, very willing. They just seek an opportunity and they're seeking and looking for hope and someone to believe in them. So again, as you know, that our babies come to us ready to learn, and they're ready for the doors to open every
4: single morning. I certainly
1: concur with you, Doctor Doctor Hester. That's also
4: awesome. Doctor Hester. I have a question for you. Uh, sometimes a myth that we hear about schools of poverty is that teachers in schools of poverty are not qualified to teach in other schools as they are in a school of poverty. It's, it seems that some people have the notion that the teachers can't teach. Can you give some? Uh, some light on that situation?
3: Yes, sir. So I do have to control myself uh, again <laughs> when I hear statements like that because that is certainly not true. Mm. I can tell you from experience that teachers that work on campuses that have students that are coming from private situations are even more qualified. And let me tell you why. Not only do they have the credentials, not only do they have the advanced degrees, but they have the heart Good. and they have the emotional intelligence to understand where our students are coming from. So there were teachers on my campus that were always looking for opportunities because they want to be lifelong learners and they are lifelong learners. So they understand that it does not stop just with a bachelor's or it does not stop just with a master's or a doctorate, but they're constantly looking at opportunities to read articles and do book studies. And in addition to that, They look for professional development opportunities. Mr. Jeffers, you just mentioned in a few minutes ago, they're always looking for opportunities to learn and to grow and to bring that information back and use it in the classroom. And then they look for opportunities to go in and observe their colleagues. If their colleagues are doing a good job with a particular peak or they're doing something spectacular and they see the kids are learning, they're transparent enough to say, you know what? I'm not getting that. Let me come and see what you are doing. So that is certainly not true. I can tell you, they're some of the best professionals that are out there that's doing whatever it takes to help students be successful. So it go, and then it goes beyond just the classroom. They go out into the community and they go into the homes and work with the parents. So mm-hmm. they really look at the whole child and what we can do to bring Along that social emotional learning part, and mm-hmm. bridge it to the content. So they're always looking for opportunities to serve students and and to be better educators. Is, I hope I answered your question.
1: Oh yeah, that <laughs> did a great job. I, I think you did. Yeah, we're looking at each other smiling over <laughs> here, Doctor <laughs> Doctor Hester. Doctor Hester, uh, you know, also as as principals, you and I have heard this quite a bit. You know, the curriculum in in poverty schools is not challenging, and you have to water down the curriculum in order to get the Kids to learn. Could you share your your thoughts about this particular myth?
3: So I have no idea. I think people just want to make up things. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned watered down. When in essence. Um, Teachers at, at, at campuses where kids are coming and, and we're providing hope, we're, we're focusing on watering up the curriculum. There you go. So there's no such thing as water down. We water up. Right. Um, because we set the expectations even higher than the state or the district will set the expectations. In fact, we focus on ways of teaching and helping students make sense of what is expected to learn. We understand it's important that students understand the subject matter and that we help them to relate their relate the information to their own background knowledge and experience. So no, we don't water down. Uh we water up. There you go. And and we try to make it challenging and impactful, but at the same time, uh we want the learning to be fun because teaching and learning should be fun. So no, we water up. <laughs>
1: there you go. You know what? I like that term watering up. Will we're gonna have to use that one. Flood. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> flood, flood. Tsunami Watering yeah. up, flooding. Tsunami those kids with the information. There you go. Well, Dr. Hester, that is going to conclude our time with you today. We want to thank you so much for sharing those powerful and passionate words of wisdom as it relates to countering some of the myths and that surround schools of poverty. As always, your thoughts were impeccable uh, as, uh, as you are. So thanks so much.
3: Thank you so much. You have me on fire again. Just talking about
1: it It gets me fired up. (laughs)
4: The passion is in your voice, Uh, most definitely.
1: Oh, absolutely. It definitely, it definitely came, comes out. Thank you very much, Doctor Hester, and and have a great day.
4: Hey, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook uh, at I Want to Speak to the Principal. You can also leave us a message on Anchor, and all those voice notes can be played into our next episode. So please interact with us. We're looking forward to hearing from you.
1: Speak to principal. We'd like to welcome Dr. Marshall Depauls to our show. Good morning, Dr. Depauls. Good morning. How are you? I am doing good, Dr. Depauls. Thank you for joining us this morning. Before we get on our topic for today, we're going to have you just give us a little background about your experience in education.
0: Okay, well, I uh, worked uh, 30 years in education system exclusively North Forest ISD. I worked as a science teacher for a number of years, uh, AP for nine years, and then the building principal at a, a middle school for nine years, and then uh, at a highest comprehensive high school for five years. Total of 30 years, and after retirement, I worked as a leadership coach. USA Plus Challenge and currently in Houston ISD and also work as a full-time clinical professor at Texas Southern University.
1: Wow. Marsh! I know you have a world of experience, and I am just very proud to say that I have been knowing you for quite some time, and you're an outstanding yeah. educator, professor, and a former school principal. And you, you've you certainly had a big impact on my career. Great, great, great. Yeah. So Dr. DuPaz, we want to start this morning. Our topic is investigating age-old myths surrounding schools of poverty. One myth that surrounds schools of poverty is that students don't value education.
0: What's your what's your view on this? I think that's that's misleading. I, I think for the most part, who uh, are parents who send kids to school, they're sending you the best that they have, and they're not in a position to send you something different than what they have. So I think for the most part, kids are generally interested, but for the most part, teachers uh, have to make the, the, the teaching learning process interesting and and pretty much reach them at their level and try to determine what the learning styles are. And teach to those running stars. So I, I think the interest is just a matter of being creative in the classroom with our lessons and what have
1: you. I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Also, under Doctor uh DuPaz, there's a myth that the the school is not safe. So as a former principal, what's what's what, what how, what's your take on that?
0: Well, as Dr. Mills said, I, I worked in a high needs school district for thirty years. There were rare instances where safety was an issue. Maybe a weapon here now and then, and maybe a little drugs, but nothing that was significantly moved the barometer in in, in a negative aspect. So right. I felt completely safe my entire thirty years. A few incidents we could not control, but for the most part, I felt safe every single day. So that myth is it needs to be dispelled.
1: Right.
4: Okay. Thank you, Doctor Dupas. Uh, I just want to throw in a question at you real quick. There is also a myth that says that there is no parental involvement in schools of poverty and I know that you said you worked in a high needs district. What's your experience?
0: First of all, coming in as a campus administrator, you have to take stock in in the school, the community, and all the stakeholders. In other words, you have to put in some sweat equity to devote time to learning the dynamics of the community, understanding the, the school culture and, and, and shaping it from the standpoint where as a principal you are accessible, not only to the students, but you have a line of communication with parents, via direct parents or surrogate parents. But I think for the most part, it requires a lot of time and effort. If if it's a principal coming in, let's just say for a year or so, then they leave, then they've invested no time. But And research shows it takes three to five years to to have some kind of impact on teaching and learning. So if you invest the time and take the effort to to network, to make yourself available to parents to go to community activities, visit the church and what have you, then yes, you will get the, the involvement that you need. And, and not every parent is going to be available, but if the word gets out there that you are making yourself accessible, then parents have a tendency to navigate towards you for purposes of helping them with, with home issues. Or just the mere fact of helping you to help them better educate that child.
1: I agree with you, Marsh. I think you know a key to that is really listening to your parents. And another thing that you mentioned earlier, just make, making your school welcoming to parents when yeah. they come in too. I think that right, goes right. a long ways into getting that parental involvement. You know, a lot of times what we'll do, too, in education, in all, all areas, is that, you know, we'll judge a parent based on, you know, how they come into the school, how they look, they, you know, how they speak and right. their prior mm-hmm. education also. I think, but if we make our schools non-judgment zones of parents, then I think our parents would be, uh, feel more appreciated when they come into the school. Totally agree. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just continuing on in our discussion of the myth, there's also a myth that the school has incompetent leadership. What do you, <laughs> don't, don't get too passionate about this, Mars, <laughs> but uh, there's often a, a myth when it comes to poverty schools that the leadership is incompetent. What's your take well,
0: on that? In my experience, especially with high need schools that need a turnaround agent or a turnaround principal, mm-hmm. oftentimes there is a recruitment effort to hire the best person available or if you, positive-minded school district, you pretty much train uh, those individuals to sustain growth. So I think it would be misleading to to put someone there that's incompetent, because in, in reality, you're deceiving the purpose. Right. My experience, I guess on the negative side, new principles may have been brought in that did not necessarily have a strong, or let's say that the years invested, right. but for the most part, when they come in, they work hard, but, but also on the opposite side, you have those individuals who are coming in to make a name for themselves. So after about a year or so, then they turn the campus around, then they may leave for something bigger and better. But for the most part, I can't fathom any school district hiring someone that's incompetent, especially in a high-need school, because no growth, and you're you're really, in reality, you're defeating the purpose. Yeah, I
1: agree. And you know, sometimes uh, when you have schools of poverty, leadership in schools of poverty, they're the the fog person. That is for right. when school is not performing academically as it should. And sometimes I think school districts should look at maybe you know, cutting back or alleviating, shifting the blame to the right. principal, because that's done quite often. And what it does also is that it discourages, I believe, it discourages a lot of uh, young principals from pursuing higher uh, capacities in leadership. You know, I, gr- I agree with you. You know, when you and you and I both know, Dr. Paz, that, you know, when you're a principal at a high-need school, not only are you the principal, you know, you're a mentor, you're a counselor, you're a dad, you know, you're a confidant, and all those things, in addition to being the instructional leader. So it can kind of, it can quite the toll on you sometimes.
0: Right. You find yourself wearing a lot of hats.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. So, Doc, thank you so much. Do you have any departing words that you'd like to leave us with before we conclude our,
0: our interview with you? Well, what I can say is that from the time we were in the school system, uh, education was kind of like something you can grow into now with the types of students and, and the clientele of, of parents. It's, it's a big challenge. Yeah. And I think now more than ever, Campus leaders, inclusive of, uh, of staff, teachers, and what have you, and community partners, need to be proactive in, in doing their level best to educate the kids in that community because when you think about it, they are our future. And if we don't have a well educated citizenry, then we, we are, in a sense, guiding ourselves in a path that's not going to be beneficial to us down the road. Yes,
1: sir. D- thank great. you, Doc. Those are very insightful and powerful and passionate words to end on. So thank you very much for joining us this morning, Dr. Dupas. Best wishes to you in the future.
3: listening to the I Want to Speak to the Principal podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Milstead and William Jeffrey. It's where education is. So sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of I Want to Speak to the Principal.
1: Speak to Principal would like to welcome Dr. Kimberly McLeod to our show. Dr. McLeod, good morning. Good
2: morning.
1: Good morning, Dr. McLeod. Good morning, Dr. McLeod.
2: Good morning.
1: And thank you for joining us this morning. Dr. McLeod, before we begin our interview with you, we'd like you to give us just a little background about your experience in education.
2: Sure, sure. I served in education for, believe it or not, a little over 25 years. I've worked as a pre-K teaching assistant, a school teacher, a school counselor, school administrator, university professor, executive director for academic affairs, and dean for a university system. And I'm a mom. I'm a mom of three boys in public school, 9th, 10th, and 11th. I'm an author. I've written about 14 books for public school systems and higher education communities and children's books.
1: Well, wow, Doctor McLeod, you have a wealth of experience and education. As I told you prior to us recording today, I know actually with your background, it would probably take an entire show for for us to get through <laughs> it. I don't but,
4: know if we can find any more qualified person.
1: Uh, oh, no, 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 not at yeah. this point, anyway. <laughs> yeah, and just want to thank you also, Doctor McLeod. You are the uh, uh, the past president of an association that that I'm affiliated with, and that's TAPSI. And we just had our conference. Uh, maybe two or three weeks ago in San Antonio, and it was a huge success.
2: Oh my! Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah You, mm-hmm. you did a, you and your staff did a fantastic job. So we thank you very much.
2: Yeah, it it was. You know, it, the benefit of pulling together so much intellectual capital and mm-hmm. creating a plan for our community by our leaders.
1: It's powerful That is Exactly
4: I want to state That I am also a member Dr. Milstead <laughs> I remember <laughs> You told me to join And I did yeah, Absolutely You remember that uh, I, I sure did Yeah I, I did. joined yeah, yeah. I just didn't go to the thing Yeah <laughs> uh, I wanted, I wanted I to be there I wanted to be there Yeah But I couldn't
2: It's not too
4: late Yeah, yeah absolutely
2: uh. all of this and hopefully
1: we can see you next year. Oh, you're going to see me next year. <laughs> done deal. It, done, uh, no doubt, no doubt. Dr. Uh, McLeod, as you are aware, uh, COVID-19 is having a profound impact on K-12 students across America. Yes. And yes. according to ABC News Today, over 20,000 schools have closed as a result of the coronavirus. These closures are infecting over 15 million students. However, the scientists are consistent with their research that the virus is having little to no impact on, on young people. So mm-hmm. we'd like, we like to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, just based on that information, do you believe we need to continue with the school closures?
2: Yes. Although children don't seem to get very sick, very sick from the infection, Mm -hmm. they're carriers. Okay. In China, where the best data was available, fewer infections were documented in children and teenagers and in older people, Mm -hmm. but they carry those symptoms and they pass it back. They take it home. Right and it makes their parents, other adults that are in their community, very susceptible, including teachers and administrators and school leaders and paraprofessionals. In addition, children aren't the most mindful when it comes to hygiene, Mm -hmm. so it'll spread even faster. So right now, while there aren't any deaths documented to children, Mm -hmm. those that they have passed it to that are adults it does
1: have a very profound impact. Okay, yeah. You know, the other night I was out with my daughter and her husband and my little granddaughter and we were out to dinner, my wife and I, and I have, you know, like most grandfathers, I want to hold my granddaughter. She's two years old and uh, she likes to play in my (laughs) face. She likes to put her hand (laughs) in my face quite a bit. And, you know, yeah. I was OK with that for, for quite before this big thing, right. you know,
4: pre-COVID, <laughs> pre-COVID. Yeah.
1: This big thing about the coronavirus started coming out. And, uh, and actually, this is yeah. just last Monday. Then I started thinking, well, she goes to a uh, she goes to a preschool. And I was wondering, I was just hoping I said, boy, I certainly hope that she did just kind of pick up something uh, while she was in school. So I, I certainly concur with your point on that. In
4: Texas, there are about approximately 2.5 million students who own free and reduced lunch. Many of these students rely on these meals for nourishment daily. If we close schools, how will these kids be able to eat?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, it's amazing to see how the community is coming together. And Houston and Texas, you know, we've shown some moments of resiliency when Harvey hit us. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've had some real disasters. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, your listeners and parents and community members, if they check their local school districts, Um, many of them have set up areas where they can still receive food at no cost during this outbreak. So... Mm -hmm those children who are particularly susceptible to um, impoverished food areas, that resource has been provided for um, all over the city. And I'm sure anyone who comes up and says they want a hot meal, they can go get as much as they would like. But the school districts have made those provisions for those families.
1: Okay, that's great information. Just to kind of follow up on that, uh, Dr. McLeod, do you think that schools should provide some form of COVID-19 testing on on staff and students when they do return to school?
2: Yeah, you know, just this morning at 8 o'clock, the U.S. House Mm -hmm. passed a measure. To try and mitigate the spread of COVID 19 and the coronavirus, where they're including free testing as well as expanded food aid and expanded sick leave and benefits for workers. I don't know if schools are set up to do that type of testing, but I believe that if we create some partnerships and relationships with the healthcare. Um, field, we already do testing for hearing and for vision, and we, you know, when I was growing up, we even did lice checks, right. and so I do believe it would be beneficial for us to be able to do testing because we, if a child is a carrier and not exhibiting, um, not exhibiting uh-huh. any symptoms does not mean that they can't pass it to a loved one right. that may carry that virus. So if that would av- were available and we could do that, I would absolutely support that. Mm-hmm. I think it's a way to protect not only the student and their family, but our community as a whole. Okay.
4: That is a point that I did not think about, Dr. McCloud. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Since Governor Bill Abbott has declared the uh, coronavirus as a state and emergency health issue in Texas, Do you think that we should suspend high stakes testing this year? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had to throw that one in. uh. (laughs) You know,
2: not to say that there is not value and relevance in knowing what our students, how we're preparing our students for college, career, and military readiness, but Sometimes you just have to prioritize things in life. Right now, we want to protect our community as a whole, protect our health, protect our grandparents and parents from you know, fighting this, you know, spreading this illness and helping survive it. To me, that needs to be the priority. And all of these, you know, with school closing, all of the employees that are hourly, that aren't salary, how do we protect them so they can still sustain? And meet? There, there's so many other priorities right now. I think testing I mean, we, we can
1: do it next year. The test isn't going anywhere. <laughs> That's right. That is right. Yeah. with if the NCAA can extend another year of eligibility on college athletes to for to play a sports, I, I think that... Get another year? We, <laughs> yeah, we can get another year. One more on the, year? Yeah, there you go. On yeah. Testing, yeah. yeah. So, Dr. McLeod, yeah. j- just to kind of change gears for a little bit, uh, you are currently in, in a runoff uh, for District 6 for the. Detect- Texas State Board of Education. So, congratulations on that. Congratulations. So, would you share with our listening audience, why why do you want to become a member of the Texas State Board of Education?
2: Yes. One, you're right. I am in a runoff, and a win is so much better than a runoff. Yeah. So.
1: <laughs> there you go. There you go.
2: Part of my work with the Texas Alliance of Black School Educators, I went to a conference once with Nancy, mm-hmm. and we were at the Monroe School in Kansas City, where the landmark case of uh, Brown versus Board of Education, and we toured the school and looked at the Negro Baseball Hall of Fame, and one of the things that they said was there was a time when the community came together and they created the agenda that they wanted for their children in their area, and so I wanted to bring that same passion back to Taxi. And I said, you know what? We have all of this intellectual capital. Shame on us -hmm. if we don't come together and create an agenda that we need for our communities and our children and our school leaders. And so one of the things that we did was organize a Texas Education Policy Institute. My motto is, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Mm -hmm. And our children and our communities have been on the menu for far too long. And if we don't organize and be strategic, we will continue to be eaten alive. Part of why I wanted to run for the State Board of Education was to be able to have a seat at the table and make decisions that are in the best interest, not only for the district that I live in, which is District 6, but my vote will impact if elected, the entire state of Texas. Mm. And why not put someone in office that is a true advocate, an advocate before this election and will be an advocate after this election to make the decisions that are in the best interest of our community. I built relationships with the Texas Association of Latino administrators and superintendents that's our group taxes. MASFA, hmm. the Mexican American School Board Association, the Texas caucus of black school board members. So it's not just me and my voice, it's a collective of all voices and an understanding that if we want to do what is in the best interest of our children, we need to have a seat at the table.
1: I, I certainly concur. As mentioned earlier, I was at the Tapsy convention and I did see the, the Latino Association, I think, is that yes. the name? They were yeah. present. Yeah, they were there. They yeah. were present when you delivered uh, the state of tap. Uh, all of our members, and uh, yeah. they were there in record number at the conference. So that is great. Yeah, we really like that saying, man. If you are not at the table, then you're on, on the, the menu. menu. You that, are that, sir. Is that barbecue chicken. That,
4: that
1: is that, <laughs> man. That is that was oh, very. That's
4: so powerful. That's very ain't. powerful. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I really appreciate the inclusive manner that you are including everybody, and especially in our District 6. I <laughs> believe it or not, I grew up in District 6. Um, I will, I appreciate um, the fact that you are such a well-rounded educator because I think you'll get the holistic, not only from the K-12 and extended college view that you have, but you also understand what it is to bring in the culture and then not yeah. marginalize other cultures, bringing in those other cultures. I, right, you got my vote. <laughs> <laughs> I, I shouldn't say that on the air. I apologize. Yeah, but I appreciate someone who has a holistic perspective of education, especially when it regards to poverty for those people who are marginalized and don't have a voice. I think you'll be a really good person to speak to that in, in rooms where that representation is not met all the time.
2: Thank you. Okay. And yeah you know, let's, love- Say this that you know, poverty, the low socioeconomic status needs advocacy, but so do our students that are in special education. That's- the lack of presence of students that are gifted and talented and to be able to make sure that every child gets what they need. If they're at our table they need to be fed. Period. Regardless of language, regardless of income, who their parents are, who they're living with, all of our children deserve to be fed. And we know that children and that live in low socioeconomic areas, they're just as brilliant Absolutely. as anyone else. We just got to give them the opportunity. Absolutely. And you probably, Mr. Jeffries and Dr. said, like my family, <laughs> they grew up very poor. Yeah,
4: <laughs>
2: and But, you know, my parents went to college and they supported me. The work they did opened up doors for generations like me. The work that I plan to do will help generations that have not even been born yet. It's not only about us right now. It's about the future that we're trying to create and protect.
1: I agree. And you've heard it right here, listeners. That's Dr. Kimberly McClellan. She is in a runoff, will be held on May 26th, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. McLeod. And uh, her school districts in District 6 include Aldean, A-Leaf, Cy Fair ISD, Houston, Katie ISD, Klein ISD, Spring Branch, Spring, Tomball, and Waller. I think I got them all correct there, Dr. McLeod.
3: There you you go. There you go. There
1: you go. One of the things we try to do is, is... we definitely try to do our research, particularly when we have uh, outstanding guests like yourself coming on our show. That, Doctor McLeod, can you give our listeners, if they want to contact you, can you give them any Facebook, or Twitter address, yeah. and those type of things? Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. My handle to reach me on Twitter and Facebook is Dr. Kim for Texas. B-R-K-I-M, The number four T X, yeah. and then my website is www. Doctor Kim for Texas, D R K I M, the number four T X. I'd appreciate your support and thank you all for your broadcast and trying to keep our public informed and protected. An ounce of prevention beats a pound of cure. Thank
1: there, you. There you go. Thank you, Dr. McCloud, and best of luck in your runoff. And oh. and you have my <laughs> vote also, by the way. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> and my family.
2: <laughs> thank you. Thank
1: you, Doctor McLeod.
4: On our next episode of I Want to Speak to the Principal with your hosts, Dr. Michael Milstead and William Jeffrey, we will look at the resources that are being shared online. What are the best practices for blended learning? How can students be engaged online? What challenges do we face as a world as we deal with our new normal, COVID 19? These questions and many more will be answered on our next episode of I Want to Speak to the Principal.
1: Tweet, tweet, chat with us on Twitter. Be sure to share the podcast on your favourite social media channels. Want to see some more of us? Head over and meet us on Instagram.